0: Is depression funny?
1: Oh, I think it's hilarious. I really think it's funny. I am not interested in well-adjusted people because they just don't know they're depressed yet. I, I'm a snob about depression. I think we are superior. I honestly do. I think our brains are more developed, and it's and it's a burden.
2: to see it. Doc says, something wrong with me i got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now?
0: It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. On this program, I talk to people who have two traits. One, they've dealt with clinical depression. and two, they make their living in comedy. These things are not mutually exclusive either, not by a long shot. You can laugh your guts out, get others to do the same, and know the chilling effects of the icy hand of despair. It's all possible. But don't take it from me. I mean, well, do take it from me. I'm the host. But also take it from my guest.
1: I am Jen Kirkman, and I am in Los Angeles, California. a fan of downtown no offense and i don't like when people talk it up i'm like it doesn't look like la so why don't you just go to chicago new york you know (laughs) like the point is palm trees and mountains you can't see any of that here
0: right right right. i uh, don't like it it
1: depresses me frankly
0: okay well, perfect segue. Perfect. <laughs> Jen Kirkman is a New York Times bestselling author. She's been featured on a bunch of TV shows doing comedy. She was a writer and regular panelist on Chelsea Lately, and she's made some very entertaining appearances on the show Drunk History. A lot of Jen's comedy is built around storytelling, taking something that happened to her, often in childhood, often mortifyingly embarrassing, and telling it in a way that's funny and relatable. And it's really admirable to me anyway, because she talks about things I could never, ever talk about. I will let my shameful, humiliating childhood anecdotes stay safely locked away in the vault. Thank you very much. And it's fascinating how she does this, too, because everybody has things happen to them. Everybody has embarrassing things happen to them, too. But Jen is able to make these things entertaining and shared and familiar. She's comfortable knowing who she is, but she didn't always know who she was or what was happening to her.
1: It's so hard because, you know, when you're a teenager, you're told society validates that you're sad all the time,
0: right? You're supposed to dramatic and probably for girls, especially.
1: Yeah. You're in your writing in your diary. And I think the first time I noticed was when my friend played me the Smiths. And I was thirteen, and there's a song called "Sing Me to Sleep," and it basically sounds like a lullaby for someone who just wishes to die in their sleep. And I remember really relating to that. And um, but then again, my friend liked it. My friend seemed a little more—I don't know. It was so weird because I was so—I de- was so depressed. I don't know if I would call it depression. I really didn't know because again, nobody talked about depression. So to me. If you would I think if you would ask me back then depression would be oh a crazy person in a straitjacket in an institution so I don't have that um, I just feel awful all the time and can't get out of my own way and everything seems dark so I don't think I really understood that I had depression until I was out on my own in college about maybe 19 and and stuff like that but I had started having panic attacks since I was 13 but I didn't I didn't know that was in the family of depression and anxiety. So it was either like, when I wasn't panicking, I was depressed. So one would sort of take care of the other. Like the depression was welcome because it meant I wasn't gonna panic. But anyway, I didn't know what any of that was. I just thought, I don't know. And then again, a superiority would take over where I thought it made me smart. You know, I'm just- Oh, you're deep. I'm deep. I'm thinking about death all the time, you guys, because you're all stupid and you're acting like you're going to live forever. (laughs) And so it became, because I had people to validate that. I had Morrissey telling me, get out of this town. These people aren't deep thinkers. You know, every song is that. And then Morrissey sang about Oscar Wilde. So then I got into Oscar Wilde. And so it turned into this, I don't know if I would call it depression because again, I didn't understand that a person could have depression and not be clinically insane. So I thought, I'm just deep, a dark thinker. Things are harder on me because I see them as they are.
0: Jen's depression was hard to pin down. Maybe it was clinical. Maybe she was just listening to the Viva Hate album too much. It was subtle. Her panic episodes were not subtle.
1: I was probably eight or nine or ten. can't remember. And... But it was directly related, I mean directly, to the movie the day after.
0: Do you uh, remember that movie? Oh God, yes. Yeah. I think we're of Ooh. roughly the same generation. It's that one uh yeah. messed up a lot of people.
1: Yes. And uh
0: This was about a nuclear war and what happened the day after the, the bombs hit.
1: Spoiler, everybody died. <laughs> yeah. It was not a happy uh but anyway, I you know, my parents again, very dramatic, made me watch it, but they didn't tell me not to. We all watched it together. And so I remember, I'm probably getting this mixed up in a dramatic timeline, but I feel like the next day, and it probably wasn't, we went on a field trip to a place called Plymouth Plantation in Plymouth, Massachusetts, where actors pretend like they are in the 1600s. And so what the fun thing for the kids to do was to try to get them to break characters. So you'd go, they'd be like, I'm churning butter. And then uh, someone would ask them, do you have a VCR? And they'd be like, what's that? And so (laughs) I heard a plane fly by really low because I think there was some kind of naval, not naval, Air Force thing in the neighborhood, but nothing dangerous was going on, just a plane. And I did a duck and cover. I just like hit the ground. Wow. And and then um, I was... I I just had the feeling of, I can't breathe, my heart's racing, feelings of unreality, where you almost feel like you're fainting. And ironically, I've never fainted. So what I think happens when you faint is it's very quick. You don't even know you fainted, like going under anesthesia. But a panic attack feeling of unreality is you feel like you're disappearing. And so it's just the scariest feeling. And I My palms were sweating and I felt like I couldn't breathe. And it just feels like you're dying, even though I'm sure dying feels nothing like this. It's just a terror. It's an immediate terror. It is completely hormonal, um, chemical fight or flight, as if a dinosaur is chasing you. And I took to the ground and then I yelled at one of the pilgrims and I was like, drop your act. We're under attack or something like that. And I, and I had to sit on the bus. Uh, I got punished, um, even though I wasn't the you know.
0: For making the colonialists believe that nuclear war was imminent.
1: (laughs) I taught them about nuclear war,
0: and so then (laughs) I. What are these (laughs) nuclear bombs you speak of?
1: I had to sit on the bus, and I guess like those things started happening more frequently and it was always closely associated with a trauma like the next one i remember was my grandfather's funeral and i had a panic attack at the after the after party at you know the uh lunch, whatever the you reception go to your aunt's house and, yeah the, the reception <laughs> uh, whatever it's good you're, you're at your aunt's house and there's devil eggs, and i remember i couldn't swallow i was afraid to swallow food i'm gonna choke i'm gonna die and so But then the panic attacks, you don't know what's happening and you don't tell anyone. So that makes them worse because you feel separate and different.
0: Many years after her grandfather died, her grandmother passed away. And that funeral was just as upsetting. She talked about it on Risk, which is a podcast where people tell stories about things that they never expected to talk about in public.
1: When my grandmother died, I saw this room of people that she met and then we made and then we went to the funeral after, but it was a, a, or the wake and uh, her body was in the next room and everyone was paying their respects, but I have never seen a dead body and I was scared to. So I, for me, it was kind of all about what I didn't want to do in that moment. And my cousins were like, go look at Nana. She's go look at her. She's beautiful. And I said, well, I don't wanna look at Nana. I don't wanna see a dead body. It's not a dead body, it's Nana. I'm like, did she come back? Well, no, she's not alive, but it's Nana. She's gorgeous. Go look at her, she's gorgeous. It's my whole family from Boston. And I'm the only one that moved to LA. And I just felt like they were like, oh, all right, Hollywood, you don't wanna be inconvenienced. Well, guess what we do here in Lowell, Massachusetts? We look at corpses and we compliment them, okay? Get in there and look at Nana. She's hot, she's wicked hot go go touch Nana's breast come on go fondle her breast can make Nana's hot so I, I don't disrespect her like she's a rapper you know what I mean and so I went up to the coffin and I was horrified my nana didn't look like my nana she looked like a corpse she looked like a corpse that they tried to like like a mean person went <laughs> and put crayons on her face and her mouth was sewn shut that was not gorgeous that's not what it, Ladies do when they want to get gorgeous at night. They don't put on a push-up bra and then go, let me sew my lips shut. That's not (laughs) gorgeous to me. And so I went back to my parents' house that night. I hadn't slept in my parents' house since I was 18 and I was 38. And I was in my single bed. And I remember laying there when I was 18, praying for death, listening to the Smiths, please kill me, God. I don't have the guts to kill myself, but I want to die because that will show everybody. I don't know what it would show people, that I had a heart murmur or something maybe. like What what would it show them exactly? (laughs) But I was just obsessed with that idea of I was different, I was separate. And so then laying in bed, I'm like, never let me die. It looks horrifying. I don't want to be part of this
0: whole thing. And that was the early part of Jen's life. Panic attacks and lingering depression. Depression, soft and dour and bleak like Morrissey. Panic a little more like Sonic Youth or Dinosaur Jr. or the Ramones. But she got by. She coped. She was able to deal at least for a while.
1: It wasn't until maybe when I graduated college, and I think the trauma of that, which was like, what do I do now in my life? The panic attacks started getting bad, 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 like afraid to get on the subway and just constant, just running out of built people. If you just were watching me on some kind of surveillance video, you would think, that I was the only one that knew a building was about to explode. I You see me <laughs> running out of buildings all over Boston. <laughs> it just got to where I couldn't go anywhere. I kept just fleeing from, you know, terror of just, oh, my God, I feel like I'm dying. I have to go outside and get some air. And um, it's not an anxiety attack, and it's not, you know, I got overheated. It's full-blown panic disorder. And, it, and at that point, when I would have major depressive episodes, I wouldn't panic because it was so... Like almost the depression was a comfort to me, and the I. Lower I gear, wel-
0: maybe, yeah.
1: Yeah, I welcomed it.
0: I should note: clinical depression is not recommended as a treatment for panic disorder, or vice versa. Here's the thing, though: throughout all we've heard so far, all the way through getting out of college, Jen still didn't think she was clinically depressed. The panic disorder, sure, you ruin enough field trips, you begin to sense that something is going on, symptoms are presenting themselves, but not so much with the depression. In fact, when she did end up going to a therapist for depression, she didn't even realize that's what she was going there for.
1: There was always like a motivating thing that would happen. I went through my first big um, breakup at 21, which was weird because I'd had breakups as a teenager that were devastating, you know. I, Date someone for two days And it was like You lost your husband in the war It was just like Oh my god But that was teen angst I think And then When I was 21 I went through breakup And I don't even know If I Who knows If I really loved this person But it just Devastated me And it It felt like Oh I guess the breakup Is why I'm depressed But that wasn't true I had depression And so I went to a therapist Under the guise of I'm sad from a breakup And so That didn't really go anywhere and then like a year later when I was like okay it's obviously not the breakup I'm still depressed I found therapy and I swear to you I don't remember how I knew to go to therapy or again it was 1996 and really there was you know some people were on AOL but I didn't have a computer I didn't there wasn't googling anything or looking for things there might have been but I didn't know about it and um I somehow found a therapist and I had, you know, it was like cheap. It was like $25 a session because I think this woman was getting her master's and I went to see her and I, she very much explained to me that panic attacks were fight or flight. And she said, you know, it's a coping skill. My, my mom and grandmother gave me by accident and I could let go of the string and it have to continue that pattern. And she gave me mindfulness exercises to do just to stay in the moment, like practice that even when you're not panicking. So take a shower and really just lather up the soap. Notice how many times you, you're you just—I was constantly in negative fantasy. You know, that's—and that—when you're always thinking that way, you're making yourself very vulnerable. So no wonder if I'm negative fantasy all day, whether it's this person hates me, I'll never get a job, or just like, what if the world ends? No wonder— You know, you might feel a little shaky sometimes when you're in a place that might give you a panic attack. So I kind of learned all this great cognitive stuff that helped me understand that I have something wrong with, well, not wrong, but that my brain is a little, it needs rewiring. I just have been thinking a certain way my whole life. My brain needs rewiring. So that sort of took the self-hatred out of it,
0: but it didn't cure the depression. Depression is an opponent. So it's a really huge step when you're fighting something to know first that you are fighting something. And then it's another great stride forward to know the opponent's name, clinical depression, the old Clinny D. Then you can set about the business of managing that fight. Jen gave Prozac a shot.
1: And that was life changing. That so? was... I remember... I used to hate Christmas, and I was walking through Boston's downtown crossing, and it's like, you know, where you go, Macy's, Nordstrom, whatever, um, decorated to the nines like Christmas, music playing everywhere, everyone's happy, and I, every year, I was just like, Bleh. and then she said the Prozac will kick in really in four to six weeks, and I just remember one day not minding the Christmas music, and it was so extreme it felt like I was dancing in the street, like Scrooge, like here's a turkey, everybody. All I did was just not mind it. All I did was feel not bothered by every single fucking thing. You know, if you walk outside without an umbrella and it's raining and it's driving you nuts, that's how I felt every day, no matter what. Like, like life was always just driving me nuts. It's like every second, and the Prozac really helped, and it. The way she described it, because back then it was very controversial and, oh, these people are just taking happy pills, but it stopped me from going way under. So I was under sea level, and it brought me up to sea level. It didn't bring me above it. I was not happier than anyone else. I was just able to cope.
0: This early adulthood period was really really important because not only did Jen find out that these feelings she had always dragged around were called depression and that life didn't have to feel that gross all the time but she found out she was funny which she had once believed long ago.
1: You know when I was a little kid I thought I was funny but people just kept reflecting back to me no you're not we don't really care for your humor. You know I would <laughs> I would come tough to school crowd. doing yeah very tough. I came to school as a kid very free spirited doing all kinds of crazy things. I I Um, I think I talked about this in one of my comedy albums. I came to school and dressed like Mozart once. And uh, I thought it was, you know, because the movie Amadeus was out. Sure. And we had to...
0: What kid didn't dress as Mozart (laughs) in days?
1: I seriously thought, (laughs) God, watch everyone be dressed like Mozart today. I swear (laughs) to God. And and we had to come to school that day. It was just a coincidence that that day we were going to show off if we had any musical talents. And so I watched that movie and then I knew it was Musical Talent Day and I took piano and I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to behave the way he acted in that movie and it'll make (laughs) me really popular. And it didn't. And so I I don't think like anyone discouraged me from doing comedy, but just I think as the um, carefree spirit started to die and the more dramatic teenage girl appeared it was poetry it was the beat it was new york city it was james dean it was smoking cigarettes wearing all black it was that for me and i thought that will take me out of the real world and i'm going to be a serious actress and or, or a dancer and when i i didn't get into um I didn't get accepted into any dance colleges. I didn't realize I wasn't as good of a ballet dancer as I thought I was. Uh, I said ballet, just in case anyone heard me say belly dancer. And so um, (laughs) it didn't dawn on me that I was funny until I was in college, maybe, I don't know, second or third year. And I was just a cranky smoker. I mean, I was like a cranky little girl thing, 18, 19, 20 who just chain-smoked on the front steps of her dorm, and my friend Jackie had a video camera back then, they were giant, and she would just laugh at me going off on people. There was like a drum circle that I was met across the way, and I'd be like, what the, you know, I'd just rant. And she would tape it. And I swear to God, I didn't know about Dennis Leary. I didn't have cable, I really didn't know. (laughs) so I wasn't trying to be like him. I was just being myself. And she was like, you're funny. I'm like, how could this be funny? I'm so angry. It's not funny. You know, I didn't. I was so dense. It took, like, someone hitting me over the head for me to think I was funny. I don't, but I was, I don't want children, and I don't necessarily like them or do that well with them. Um, I didn't like them when I was a kid. I was a big dork growing up. And I know all you see now is a swan, but I really was... <laughs> And one, one example is just like, I had a piano recital in school, like we had to take music lessons at school, and I said, oh, I'm not going to just play this Mozart piece, I'm going to come to school dressed as Mozart. Um, no change of costume, thank you. Just going to straight up be him all day, answer questions, whatever. And my mother, put baby powder in your wig. If you hit your head, it'll look like you're from the past.
2: It'll
1: look dusty. So the hottest kid in my class, uh, well, hot for when you're nine, whatever. uh, He was there, obviously, because he was in my class. And he was playing a a Mozart song, too. And I thought, like, oh, well, soulmates. And so I went up to him, and I was like, hey, Jonathan, um, uh, I play Mozart, too. Maybe we could get together and practice sometime. And he was like, are you asking me out? And I was like, oh, he probably doesn't think that's a good idea. And I just was like, no, Genzart's asking you out. And then, uh,
2: <laughs>
1: I know you thought like, "Oh, it's gonna be another one of those triumphant girl dresses up like a composer story,"
0: but no. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOkay.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations about mental illness and stop the stigma surrounding it, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illness. We have a lot of laughs on this show. It's a, a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of knocking down the scary power of it a little bit, but we also know that It's a serious disease. It's something that needs to be taken seriously if it exists in your life, whether it's you or somebody around you. But the good news is that everyone can get help. You can talk about this thing. You can talk to your loved ones. You can talk to your friends. That can be an awkward conversation. But makeitok.org is full of information that you can use, tools that are available, conversation starters, ways to bridge that awkward conversational gap that you might run into, you can find information at MakeItOK.org to start those conversations. Don't go it alone. Don't let stigma win. Talking to Jen Kirkman in this episode, and from hearing her tell it, it sounds a lot like a lot of Jen's early life was not just figuring out who she was, but who she wasn't. And finding out who you're not in life is is just as important as finding out who you are. Jen came to learn that she wasn't a dancer. She wasn't a delightful child Mozart impersonator. She was a person with depression. And she was a comedian. And that last part took some convincing.
1: If you read um, the book Just Kids with Patti Smith and Robert Mapplethorpe, I love that book so much because she's bumming around New York forever. Ever, And I don't know. She's, like, making collages and, like, painting and writing poems. And she keeps writing poems, and then she keeps going to see music and getting jealous. Like, she talks about this moment where she sees Jim Morrison, and, and she just feels like, I need to—wow, I want to feel like he does. But she didn't even think of singing, and you're screaming into the book, you're a singer-songwriter! <laughs> Get on
0: stage!
1: Yeah, and so that's probably— I really related to that like it took me so long to realize that that thing I loved as a kid and that it's also something that's in the arts like that might be what I'm suited to and it wasn't until this sounds like a fake story but my gay best friend wanted to audition for a comedy troupe and I went with him to offer moral support and the people were just being nice they saw me sitting out there and they're like what are you doing? And I said, just supporting your friend. They go, you should just join in too. You know, it was like a group audition, and I got in, and he didn't. Oh boy! <laughs> and the the comedy troupe. It was perfect for someone who wants to be serious but doesn't quite get that they're funny yet. Was called Burnt Toast, and the only thing it did was spoof Edgar Allan Poe material. It didn't. There was no <laughs> original sketch. It all had to be a parody of Edgar Allan Poe. So it was perfect for me. And so then I slowly went. Oh, I like this. And then I started reading, then I went to see standup comedy and it was like Patti Smith watching, um, Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I don't want to sit here. I want to do that. I can't. It was, a, you know, again, that snobbery. I'm not one of you people in the audience that just entertained. <laughs> I belong gets up there. Yes, <laughs> yes, I need to be up there. And so it was seriously like, God, my God, like five years of this dragging on before I did my first open mic at age 22.
0: So she packs up her clothes, her books, her furniture, her depression, her panic disorder. They all load into the car, and she moves to New York City to become a comedian.
1: And I didn't go to therapy for a while in New York. I stopped going, and... And I had Xanax and or something or Ativan, so I had my pills for if I was going to have a panic attack. And so I felt like oh, I got this; I'm medicated. And then I found a therapist who was not good. She fell asleep on me a few times, oh my
0: God. and she a didn't few understand. You kept going back to her.
1: Oh, I'm dumb. I thought oh, she's tired. And then this one time, I just was complaining about, you know, I'm like year four into comedy and like why are not I famous? And she was like. I said something uh she goes do you know robin williams i go no not personally and she goes would he think you're funny i go i have no idea and she goes well if you don't know people like this how are you gonna make it i was like well that's (laughs) like like and i go well you just keep doing it and she goes don't you think you would have done it by now i was like jeez, that's what I think. But she was you know, obviously wrong, but she was terrible.
0: It's like the negative voices in your head got a degree in psychology and then opened a practice in Manhattan. Anyway, okay, so Jen Kirkman has had a life-changing experience with meds. They treat her depression. She can see clearly now the rain is gone. And her therapist was a sleepy jerk. So no therapy. So what we're looking at here is meds. Yes. Yay. Therapy. No, not so much. But can I get one of those record scratch sound effects?
1: And I'm not medicated anymore. I have um, I'm in the, I've been in therapy now in L.A. for 15 years with the same person. And, um, you know, I go to like spirituality for depression. I love like 12 step meetings. I, I kind of visit those and I just love Everything. I love self-help. I love it all. And I, but I'm not medicated. But I don't say that with pride. Like, if I needed it, I'd go right back on it. I've taken all kinds of antidepressants, um, for different stages in my life, and uh, needed it, loved it. It worked so well. And then sometimes you just go. I think I don't. And the panic disorders in. Remission, you know, I only really like now it's just like, oh old friend, shut up, It's like it's invited to stay. Mm-hmm. It's like a passenger in my front seat that is always there, and they never pipe up unless I'm about to get in an accident, and they have terrible ideas about what to do, <laughs> and then I sometimes I listen to them and I spin out. Or sometimes I go, great idea, we're not doing it though. And then I move on. So like I can feel panic attacks coming on and then I go, mm, we're not doing that today. And it's taken practice and practice and practice over the years. And when I look back on it, I don't even, rem- it's like hard to remember feeling those feelings. It's it's almost like I can't relate to my old self. It's But it took day by day work. And I have now a psychiatrist who gives me up in once a year for, you know, when I do fly like really long distances, I take one preventatively.
0: This is from Jen's 2007 album, Self-Help.
1: Like the worst flight I ever had was I took a red eye and it was taking off and my medication hadn't kicked in. And I just was like, I no, I have to get off, I have to get off but we were already going up and uh, you're not really supposed to run up the aisle while the plane's taking off and I just lost it and I ran up the aisle screaming and uh, the stewardess was like, no, no, and they got me and they they held me and it was one of those moments where they're trying to grab me and then once they started holding me, it was like Like a like music kicked in and I just we kind of looked at each other like, and then her maternal instinct kicked in and she just she laid me down (laughs) on the seats. and she held me and the other guy stewardess was rubbing my hands this is pre 9 11 so they had they had time and so they were um, they were doing that to me and i had a little um beanie baby that i'd bought at the airport because i thought like this will help and i just remember going get my duck get my duck get my duck, get my duck! kicks in, I wake up six hours later, and I see them and they're all concerned and they're like, how are you? And I'm like a jock who slept with you in a blackout, I'm like, didn't mean anything! Like, get off me! just walk away.
0: Jen says her longtime psychiatrist offers good practical advice that fits her really well. Maybe that's why he's a longtime psychiatrist.
1: He told me once, use your creativity to soothe yourself. Like, you know, people can tell you, oh, it's fight or flight, and we've got these leftover chromosomes or whatever that we don't need from the cavemen and fears, and it, that never worked for me. But he would say, you know, make up a story in your head, like you're sitting there, and some mafia guy comes up to you and sits next to you on a plane, and he's like, you're going to pay up, and... And you're like, I, you've got the wrong person. I don't owe you money. And in his mind, that's me talking to my panic. Like, if my panic starts oh. panicking, I talk to it and I go, "You're in the wrong place, buddy. You, we don't want anything to do with me." And it's it's weird, but I I think of stuff like that. Or he told me one time, your panic is like George Bush piping up, George W. Bush piping up in a cabinet meeting, and they're like, "Okay, buddy, that's not a good idea." All right. So anyway, it, <laughs> what do you think we should do? You know? And it's like. It's like the drunk son whose dad lets him have a seat at the corporate table. It's like my panic and anxiety are just these things that have terrible ideas. And so I have to, like, separate myself from it, have a sense of humor about it. But you can't start there. That's just what comes with time.
0: Most people dealing with depression go through trial and error when looking for ways to address it. Plenty of trial, plenty of error, and eventually, hopefully, you arrive at some combination of treatments that work for you. And I think it often corresponds to who you are. Jen Kirkman talks, you see. She talks for a living. She talks socially. Best-selling author. She is all about words. And talk therapy works for her. Or even just places where people gather and share stories. For instance, groups where people talk about recovery.
1: Everyone should go. Everyone qualifies. We we all have the disease of other people, basically. You know, it's just such a great companion to therapy, which is just like, you, you know, you learn boundaries and you learn how to take care of yourself and you learn how to soothe yourself in ways that aren't drinking or pills or going into histrionics. And, and so... My depression came back really bad at age thirty-five because I wasn't where I wanted to be in my career. I was very broke. I was very unhappy, about to get into a marriage, and I just felt stuck. And I would listen to these tapes and they would make me feel better. Because it wasn't about drinking. It was about, you know, just like do the next step. Like stop being a baby and a victim. At some point, if that's what sucks. At some point, if you lean into your depression too much, you can start being a baby and a victim. And Again, that's so dangerous to say because some people are very, very sick and they're not trying to be. But some people like me who had it who had it, but don't have it so clinically that I can't help myself, I go into baby and victim. And so stuff like that helped me. It was like having someone smack me around a little bit, um, like a drill sergeant kind of thing. So it's stuff like that where it's like relax a little bit. Just literally relax.
0: A question I've brought up before in this program, and one that I think about a lot, has been, is there a higher percentage of people with depression in comedy than in the general population? It's pretty much the original question that I had that brought about this whole show. And it would be very, very difficult to arrive at an unambiguous scientific answer to that question. But Jen connected mental illness and comedy in a way that I hadn't heard before.
1: I really think, you know, and I don't like when people think that their um, depression or anxiety is good for their comedy, but all that anxiety is, is anticipatory anxiety. um, And you are disaster casting as is are catastrophizing or what if, and you're looking ahead and then that makes you panic. And so that's kind of how the mind has to work for comedy. One step ahead. What if, what if, what if? And. Being naturally wired to think that way since a child's age, I think, of course, my brain was quite suited to comedy. You always have to think what if and be one step ahead of the audience. And so I think that's where that natural ability came from. But I don't need to be anxious anymore to keep that because I'm already wired that way.
0: Can you explain a little bit more of that what-if uh, kind of idea? Because I think I know what you're talking about. But but what is it that a, a comic is doing in in imagining a step ahead of the audience?
1: So, like, in the anxiety world, it's like you watch—some people watch the day after and go, that's terrifying, hope it doesn't happen. Good night, honey. And they never think about it. And some people go— what if that really happened and you're laying in bed at night? Like, what if right now? What if right now? What if right now the bomb comes? Okay, I'd go in the basement. I'd do this. Yeah, but then how long would I live? What if the what if the radiation's soaked through? Okay, well, I can move to Canada. How fast could I get there? And it's like you're just planning. You're planning and planning and planning. And then in stand-up, you're quickly, like, on your feet planning. You're, you're one step ahead of the audience in that you... You might be writing a joke or thinking of a joke and you're like, well, everyone's going to think that. So I'll lead them this way. And so it's it's that kind of thing. And also going what if helps you dive into a topic better. You know, oh, I want to tell a joke about. I don't know. Like, what would I tell a joke about? I want to tell a joke about how I saw this dumb person on the bus. And then it's like, oh, what if? Oh, what if they could read my thoughts? What if? We became best friends. It just leads you into a creative area. Take
0: that extra so step think, or two. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think my anxiety is always, my thing is if I'm not surprised, it can't hurt me. So if I can predict exactly how the disaster is going to go down, then at least I won't be surprised. I think the scariest thing about panic attacks is you're like, what the fuck? This just came out of nowhere. And um I don't like came out of nowhere. So if I can predict Exactly how I feel, exactly what will happen. And so that kind of thinking, that predictive thing, I think serves me well in comedy. Like, okay, it's 10 o'clock. What if the crowd's drunk? Okay, I'll do this. I'll go into that bit if that happens. Like, It really serves me well that I am wired to think that way. And now I just don't think about, I don't think that way in any other area except my job. So I keep it where it's good and I let it go where it doesn't serve me.
0: This might be an example of what she means. This is from Jen's 2015 Netflix special, I'm going to die alone and I feel fine.
1: And it made me angry because now, see, when I see stuff like that, I can't just leave it alone. My mind starts going a million places. I'm like, this earth is overpopulated by billions of people and there's too many people on the planet and people blame the two cutest groups, right? They blame babies, too many people having babies and they blame old people, old people living too long. I don't care. I like babies and I like old people. keep them. It's us, white people, 20 to 60, doing nothing. I'm yelling. You paid to watch it. This is stupid. I have a
2: dumb job.
1: I have a dumb life. So do you. Taking up space.
0: Jen says that what she's doing now works, at least for her, at least for now. Your results may vary, but by all means, please do try to join a sketch comedy group. That is Edgar Allan Poe-based. Everyone should do that, just across the board. I asked Jen what kind of advice she has for people who might just now be finding out that they have a mental disorder.
1: I would say, you know, don't project into the future and be like, oh, my God, I'm going to have this my whole life. Like, accept that it could be part of your life and that it can be manageable. And that it can even be something you learn to appreciate and love. So don't be afraid of it. Like, invite it in. Go to therapy right away. Tell them every single dark, crazy thing. You're not going to go to jail. You're not going to be put in an institution. It's like, just tell, just be honest. And don't be afraid of medication. Don't let people tell you that we're an over medicated society. Maybe we are, but there are people who actually need it. And you're probably one of them if you're feeling this bad. Um, and you know, that's, I feel like people say you're over medicated. It's like, okay, fine. If you went to your primary care physician for sore throat and they're like, get on Prozac. Like, yeah, you're over medicated, but if you're so depressed, you don't know what to do and you seek help. Like I, I hate that if someone gives you medication it's like, oh, we're over medicated. You can always get off the medication. And I would say too that like, you don't know, it could get better. It could go away. Mine kinda went away. And I'm sure it'll come back. So I'm not stupid. It's not a horror movie where I'm like, well, I killed every last beast. You know, I'm not dumb. <laughs> I'm not gonna go up the stairs um without the light on. I'm I know it can come back. So but I feel like it's not it's just not gonna be this bad. It just isn't is not gonna feel this way today that it does In a year, it won't
0: feel this way. Don't go upstairs without the light on. Good advice for mental health, or if you find yourself in a horror movie. Jen Kirkman, thank you so much.
1: Do I say something? Thank you. This was a delight. I hope we've helped people. I think we will.
0: The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Our technical director is Veronica Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Kate Moose. Special thanks to Jonathan Blakely. Our theme song is called "Paliacci," and it was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller. Much more about Rhett is at his website. As you might expect, that's how websites work, rhettmiller.com. Confidential help is available for free at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org, which is a campaign to start conversations about mental illness and stop the stigma. It's a way for you to find help either for yourself or for people around you. It's a place you can get information and get some tips to initiate those sometimes awkward conversations where you want to reach out to somebody and help, but you don't quite know what to say or what not to say. This is a resource you can use. It's a place to check out for yourself or for others, Makeitokay.org. Find it, use it, make it okay. A brief correction here, in episode two of this series, I referred to Maria Bamford's husband as Brian. His name is not Brian. His name is Scott. My apologies to Maria, to Scott, and to Brian, wherever he is. On the next episode, you might be depressed if... With comedian Baron Vaughn. That basically was what I did for weeks on end. I would stay in bed, eating nothing but Cheerios, bathing in Dawn dish soap, and uh, and just going back to bed. I'm John Mo. Bye now.
2: Say, I'm a hopeless case. Say, it ain't so. Would you say, I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. Would you say, I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know.
0: Hey, make sure to check out TBTL from APM Podcasts. It's these two guys, Luke and Andrew, discussing the news and their insecurities and once in a while, childhood pets. Oops was my mom's bird. I mean, it's just this little dirty monster that you would, like, kind of let out of the cage and just kind of fly around. And all it would do is eat all my dad's uh, credit cards. And um, and the reason it's named Oops, and this probably had a, a psychological effect on me as well, like, it didn't really have a name. My mom was trying to train it, and she was taught that you're supposed to say Oops when it shits outside the cage. And so it'd shit outside the cage all the time, and she'd say Oops. And then we just started calling the bird Oops. So basically, the bird's name was Shit. <laughs> like, I did not like this bird, really, at all. Andrew, this is without a doubt the single most interesting thing about you. (laughs) Okay. We never said they were really interesting people, but they do the show five days a week and that has to count for something. Volume, after all. Subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts.